This is Rilo's Quack Chat. As a call maker, I enjoy talking shop with other duck call makers. On this podcast, it's all about duck calls and duck hunting. From the marsh to the duck call shop, we're going to find the story behind the duck calls and the people that make them. This is Rilo's Quack Chat. Hey, hey, everybody, how's it going? This is Riley Hendrickson with Rilo's Quack Chat, talking about duck hunting, duck calls, and everything waterfowl. Today we're going to be talking about outfitters, season past, all that good stuff. Um, Yeah, so I don't know about you guys, but in Indiana, the duck season is over. Goose season is still going till February. Um... So, yeah, so all you guys are trying to get the last geese, good luck to you guys out there. Um, And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, this time of year, you're looking at the end of season. You're probably starting to put your gear up. You've got that crazed look in your eye because you drove to hell and back, put thousands of miles on your truck trying to chase geese and ducks and... You are probably thinking now, man, you're probably doing two things. You're looking at calls, probably some new calls, because your guts fell out of your call in the swamp, so you're looking for a new call. Or you're like, you know what, there's so many people hunting my hole, maybe this next year I need to book an outfitter. So as a duck hunter, I mean... Just starting to go with an outfitter, there are so many questions that you could have. Um, so out of all of my guests, man, one of them that was has been an outfitter and, I mean, he's knows his way around the duck and goose call and he's just very uh, good at what he does is Mr. Jonathan Hill and he is back on the podcast again. Jonathan, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Riley. Appreciate you having me on again. So before we go right into it, man, how was? Let's recap your season. I mean, how was it? I mean, was this your first season not guiding? It was my first season not guiding. Um, was it more I, enjoyable I, this time around? Uh, oh my god, it was uh, incredibly enjoyable to be back home every day, being able to spend calls uh, on the lathe when I wasn't hunting and uh, hunting with my friends again. Just just buddy hunting, not uh, taking people that I had to babysit was absolutely a relief, and I am 1,000% glad that I uh, quit guiding and started buddy hunting again. Yeah, and there was not one moment where you were like, I could have done this as a guide this season, or I could have done that? Absolutely none of those. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, uh, we, we had a good season. Uh, we started up in Canada, as most people know, if they listen to the last podcast, uh, we did two trips up there, hunted about three to three and a half weeks with just me and three other guys. So it's always just four guys. And we ended up killing, I think 666. And then once we got home, uh, we have me and a couple buddies are on a, a strip pit lease here in southern Illinois where I live, and we killed, uh, now goose season's still in, duck season's out, but as of right now, which I don't even goose hunt after duck season goes out, but mm-hmm. I think we're sitting at like 348, so I've seen just over a thousand birds die this year uh, between Canada and southern Illinois, and we have one other spot where we've killed about 40 or 50 in there, so a uh, pretty good season. Um, I actually just wrapped up a hunt where we went with an outfitter, um, which a buddy of mine has done some uh, web-based episodes. If anybody ever wants to watch any, you can get on YouTube and type in Fouled Reality. Um, he does a web-based show he's been doing for years. Um, but we went with an outfitter that he had done a show with, and... Uh, you know, it's one of those experiences that uh, just wasn't as good as what you thought it might be. So uh, sometimes that happens. Um, it wasn't so much that, you know, nobody has control over the birds and how they work and all that. You know, That's got a lot to do with the weather and the moon phases and all that. But, um, again, one of those outfitters that tells you everything you want to hear. And when you get there, it's just not quite what you talked about. So, 
Um, but other than that, but that's why we're on this uh, web uh, or this this podcast today, talking about outfitters and what to look for and what to stay away from. So, so I'm ready. For... Yeah. So real quick, is is it hard for you to be on this side sometimes when you're being guided? Um, it is because you know what should be happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I let the guide know whenever I talked to him earlier in the season, whenever we had uh, uh, booked this hunt, I, the first thing I told him right out of the gate, it says, I, I have been a guide for years. I know all the tricks and the trades and, you know, all that. I said, I want you to shoot me straight. And then went right into the questions. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, he answered every question, you know, as I figured it would but the the question the first question i asked him was does the moon phase affect the brant and the ducks because that's what we went for is brant like it does you know the waterfowl that i'm used to hunting here in the mississippi flyway you know and uh he said the brant are super easy to kill it's 100 percent pretty well success he said you know they're there um the moon the moon don't affect them so much as what the tide does he said but you won't have any problems Hmm. and of course you know once we started coming in after we'd only shot a few birds then he started talking about the moon phase and right then is when you can tell that you know he's telling you whatever he wants to get you there Hmm. Uh, so but we made sure that we didn't go on the full moon but you know it wasn't prime dates if you was looking for the darkest possible moon phase you can get, which is what everybody should be looking for when booking a hunt. Okay, hold on a second. We will uh, get back to this, but moon phase. Tell uh-huh. me more about this. I I have heard somewhat about this, but do you do you base your hunts off of the moon phase? Absolutely. Even while we're going to Canada, uh, anywhere we're traveling, we're always looking at the moon phase in that region. Um, because moon phase has everything to do with any hunting you're doing. Whether you're hunting deer or you're hunting ducks or you're hunting whatever, the moon phase always um, has a lot to do with the movement and patterns of the birds. So when I was guiding all the time, <clears throat> out of a 60-day season, you know that every month you have a full moon phase. So for, you know, say today is the full moon. All right, well, one week ago until one week after today is going to be halfway bright, okay? So those birds, whenever it gets on a full moon, and I know a lot of people probably don't ever think about this, but if you ever watch it, the full moon birds, you hardly see any birds during the day. The reason is, is because they feed all night long, and their bellies are full, so whenever the sun comes up, they've already moved back to where they're going to be loafing for the day, and their bellies are brand new, topped off full. So they don't have to go feed in the morning because they've already fed all night. So during a full moon phase, and the way you can tell that this happens is when you say you're going to scout or you're making an evening hunt the day before, you're going to see zero birds until about 30 minutes after shooting hours. And 30 minutes after shooting hours, when most people are already gone in their truck driving, they start pouring in. Um, And this was very noticeable whenever I used to guide in Arkansas and say you're hunting flooded rice fields, those birds would absolutely, well, I, I mean, you would see zero birds during the evening, and then you'd literally see 15, 2,000, 2,500 come in a half hour after shooting hours and land within 15 feet of you because it's so dark they can't see, you know, or not seeing what you are. And then you can watch all those birds pile in there that night, and when you come back the next morning, you will not run one single bird out of there because they've already left. So that's wow. why, you, yeah, you cannot hunt birds on a full moon. And the problem with guiding it that we as guides know that for at least three to three and a half weeks during your season, because you got a 60 day season and the full moon the week before and the week after, that's basically four weeks where you know that the bird movement is going to be very, very slow. And then you as a guide, have to stay upbeat you got to 
act like, you know, they're just not moving today, even though you know in your heart that you're not going to kill the birds because of the moon phase. And these guys that have spent all this money um, that they've been saving for some people a year, two years, three years to go on these dream hunts, you're not going to kill the birds because they've already fed and they're sitting down. You know what I mean? Um, and I hate that, but as a guide, you go out there knowing, man, we're not going to kill nothing today, and this is going to suck. And you do that for about three weeks out of the whole season. Wow, mind blown. Yeah, so so then, you know, just letting everybody know, even if they got to call me and ask me questions, you just look at the moon phase, and you can pull up the moon phase on the moon phase calendar right now for the end of eternity. You could go to, let's just say, you know, uh, Saskatchewan, Canada. You can type in moon phases for Saskatchewan, Canada in 2026, and it'll show you every single day and what the moon's doing during that day, and you want to stay away from the bright moon. So let's say that, you know, November 4th is the new moon, or let's say November 4th is the full moon. You know that you don't want to go anywhere from... October 25th till, you know, October or uh, November 15th, because that's, that's right in that, that phase where those birds are, are going to be a little finicky. You want to go when it's absolutely as dark as it can possibly be. Oh my gosh. So you won't hunt that whole time? Uh, we just, we'll just schedule our times around it. Um, now if I'm at home, I'm going to hunt every day just because I can, um, but I'm not hunting food when I'm hunting here. I've, you know, we're hunting the strip pit. So basically we're hunting low spots. Um, but as far as hunting food, um, it's, <laughs> you're not going to do very well. Let's just put it that way. Wow. So, okay. Okay. Um, haven't we had a full moon for the last week? Uh, well, you know, the way the moon phase goes, and, and a lot of people don't understand it, uh, it's because they just don't pay attention to it. But, yeah, whenever you start get that full moon, you know, from a week before the full moon to a week after the full moon. So let's say a week before, it's getting brighter and brighter every day. So there's mm-hmm. a little bit more moon showing until you get to the full moon. Mm-hmm. And then it starts going, you know, getting a little less, little less, little less, little less every day. So you have to time it to where you're getting to either that, coming down to you know five days before the darkest moon and then five days after that so there's basically about 15 days out of every 30 that are going to be optimal hunting um if you're hunting food source and those are the yeah so whenever people are booking say you want to book a hunt with an outfitter next year you need to already be on that or you need to be getting on that fairly quickly because all those prime dates are going to start going. Um, and any outfitter that's worth his salt um, that has repeat customers, which is what all outfitters are out there to do is get repeat customers every year. Um, you know, those customers that have been coming for a while, they get their choice of dates. Mm-hmm. Um, some outfitters will say, we'll just book you for the same date next year. Well, I got news for you. The moon phase is not going to be the same today this year and the same today next year it's going to be different you have to look at that every single year that you're going to be doing this so if uh you know there's guys that are rebooked like say it's a great outfitter you know they're going to be probably 80 to 85 percent booked for the next year already and they're going to have open dates here and there and then you just got to get online and look. And if it's during the full moon, you just say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm I just those dark dates aren't going to work for me and look for a different outfitter or uh, tell them, you know, we'll book it for the next year. Because I promise you, even though a lot of people want to get away from the family and just show up at camp and, you know, bull crap and drink and all that, um, you're not going to have a good experience when you get to the blind and start. Hmm. Okay, so it's kind of, it's just like what the almanac was with the fishing. Okay. Yep. And full moon affects fish just like it does waterfowl or deer or anything else. The full moon affects everything. Hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we used to uh, fish for crappie at night during a full moon, and I even fished during the day. 
absolutely and you can catch the fire out of them um, especially if you fish under lights you know put those lights in the water you attract the minnows in and the crappie mm-hmm. come minnows and you can wear them out yeah yeah we always used to do uh black or dark brown lures on the moonlit and if it was like full moon man it was time to go at night absolutely and you can kill a lot of ducks at night during the full moon if you want to do it illegally (laughs) (laughs) yeah we do not condone that here (laughs) yeah they do that in the market hunting days believe it or not oh i'm Um, sure they did They sure did. They hunted at night during the market days. Uh, just, you know, pull up on rafts of ducks and everybody who's hunted, um, whenever you're going in at, at, you know, in dark and you've got a headlamp on, you can get pretty close to those ducks before they finally flush. So those market hunters knew, you know, we can kill a whole lot of them if we uh, shoot them at night over lights. And they did. So. Well, they but, were, yeah. go ahead. We don't condone that. That's for no. sure. We they were also using two gauge pump punk guns too. So oh, yeah, they used every gun imaginable. You know, if it had <laughs> if it had a, a way where they could shoot one shot and kill twenty, forty, fifty of them, they were doing it because that's how. You know, of course, market hunting. You know, that's a whole different different ball game. What we <clears> do today. Those people were feeding their families back then. Yeah. Um, they didn't know that this renewable resource, like any other resource, like the passenger pigeon, that you could decimate the populations, you know. Um, and for the longest time, there was zero limit. Then they went to a limit of uh, 50, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. I think they went to 100 limit, and then down to 50, and then down to 25, and now down to what we are have today. But, um, you know, if you listen to some of those old stories back then, the amount of ducks that we had then was incredible. They just wiped them out. You know, so, mm-hmm. but they didn't know, and they were feeding their families. So, you know, you can't can't be mad at them. You can't say, well, we could kill twenty five birds a day if it wasn't for them back then, because that's, you know, there wasn't as many sportsmen back then as what there are now. So, you just gotta take it with history, and we learn from history, no matter what it is. You know, we we always learn from history. So that's how we know how to right our wrongs and and uh, keep those mistakes from happening in the future. Yeah. So let, let's say I'm, I mean, I'm, I've been watching during season. My season sucked. I'm looking at different outfitters, and I find one, and I've checked the moon phase, and I go to call the outfitter. What What are the next questions I need to be asking the outfitter? Uh, well, first of all, um, I'm going to back up just a tickle because let's say you're starting to look for an outfitter. Uh-huh. Um, and you have it narrowed down to three or four. Okay. Most people nowadays are booking hunts through, uh, the internet. So mm-hmm. if you're searching through the internet now, and I'm going to tell you, this happens with every single outfitter, obviously the pictures they're going to post are the, po- the pictures that they have banner days. Okay. So you're going to see piles and piles of ducks. Well, I don't care who you are. If you're a terrible hunter, there's going to be a couple days a year where you have a flight day where you're going to absolutely murder the birds. All right. So they're putting up the best pictures they have. They're always going to put up pictures with birds that are banded. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just don't kill banded birds often. Everybody knows that. But they're going to put those on there because that's eye candy to you. It's the same as building a, a crankbait for fishing and you paint it for the people who's seeing it, not the fish. You know, you're going to say, oh man, that looks fantastic. And you buy it because it looks fantastic well, to a fish. All he's looking at is red color. He don't care. Yeah. Uh, so when you're looking and you find an outfitter, do not go by pictures. Do not go by, you know, the band pictures or the pile pictures. Okay. So that's, that's null and void because everybody's going to have good pictures. And some people even use pictures from other people. It's not even killed where they're at. That happens a lot. It even happens during, uh, you know, if you're booking a deer outfitter, they're going to show you big old bucks that his buddy may have killed 20 miles down the road. It's not even their property. It happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a shame it happens, but it does. Uh, but the first thing you need to look for in any situation, I think, is do they have lodging? Um, if they do not have lodging, if they have, uh, uh, we have a hotel down the road or we have Airbnbs or whatever, to me, that throws up a red flag already. Um, and I'm not saying there aren't good outfitters out there that don't have lodging, but odds are, you know, they're leasing all these fields. They don't own them. They don't have that land. Um, and it's just, 
to me, if you're going to be a professional outfitter, you better have lodging. So that's my first question. Do you have lodging, which most of those you can find out on a website anyway. Um, if they don't have lodging, I'm pretty well staying away from them. Um, so that's first and foremost. But, you know, once you start talking to a guide, I mean, as far as the, the questions that I would be asking is, are we hunting with you? Do you have other guides? You know, because a lot of people have guides and like, say, the, the owner's a guide. Well, he'll he'll cater mostly to the higher end clients that he thinks are going to they're either repeat customers or guys that they think are going to be repeat customers so they're trying to get them on the good side and then if you're not that group if you're just a group of one or two or somebody he's never heard before or seen before he's probably going to put you with one of his other guys that are going to one of the lesser holes um, because if say if you're an outfitter and you've got 10 blinds or 10 pits or a combination of 10 blinds or 10 pits um, they're probably going to hunt two or three a day and there's probably two of them that are really good holes and you got eight of them that are going to be mediocre to gar holes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's almost, you just got to ask them, you know, am I going with you? Um, I mean, what other questions can you ask? I mean, but what you got to remember is they're going to tell you what they want to hear most of the time. So, you know, whatever, whatever sounds best to sell a hunt. So, uh, but like, a, you know, when I asked this guy, you know, I obviously asked him about the moon phase, but if you're doing your homework, you've already got that out of the way. Um, so you already know what date you got. But if you call an outfitter and say, hey, I want to come on this date because you've looked at the moon phase and he says, I don't have those dates available. Well, then you skip past the full moon into the next month. Uh, this is the darkest time. Do you have dates here? And if he says no, if it were me, I'd be looking for a different outfitter. Um, mm. maybe tell him I'll book with you the next year, go ahead and put me down or what have you. Um, but do you have lodging? Um, and what's included in that is dinner, you know, meals included, which obviously you can find these things out through the website most of the time too. Um, and you know, do you have pictures of the meals that you're serving? Because I, I worked for an outfitter for a very, very short time years ago that he was fixing garbage for dinner. I mean, absolute just hot dogs and hamburgers just stuff that if i was paying to hunt there i would have been very upset um so maybe ask for pictures of you know some of the meals that they prepare and stuff like that um but you know other than that i mean there's you can ask a million questions but you're probably just going to get answers that he wants you to hear mm. hmm. yeah now <clears throat> When when should people start looking at the moon phase and booking hunts, and when is too late? Uh, well, as far as too late, you know, you're going to get a lot of outfitters that have cancellations every year. That's going to happen. Uh, but if you want to book a hunt for next year, you need to already be on that um, because, you know, dates – like I said, if he's if he's worth his salt at all, 85% of his client days are already booked for next year. So what you have to do is you have to look at that moon phase and you got to write down, okay, I'll go from the 15th of November to the, you know, the 22nd, and then I got to cut it off there, and then I can go from January, you know, 8th to January 15th, and I've got to cut it off there. So you need to have your dates locked in. For, for what the darkest moon phase is and then if that outfitter doesn't have those dates and he can't accommodate you then it's time to look elsewhere because you're not going to be satisfied going with some date that he's got available during the full moon it's you're wasting your money mm. hmm. hmm that's very interesting you know what a couple questions that I have had from guys because we I've just talked to other guys about outfitting and one a couple questions are do I bring my dog do do I even do I even use my duck or goose call do they handle the calling like what would you say about that but you know a lot of people ask outfitters uh, if they can bring their dog. Some outfitters will allow it, and some outfitters are 1,000% against it. And the reason why we're against it, and I as a guide was against 
people bring their dogs. Although I never told somebody they couldn't bring their dog because first of all, a lot of people are out there for their dog. Um, if they can't bring their dog, they don't want to come and that's fine. Um, but what you got to realize is most guides have their own dogs. They are seasoned dogs. They do it every single day. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for the most part, you know, most of the dogs are good. Now, I'm not saying all guys' dogs are great because it just depends on how much you baby them and, you know, not discipline them, how much you let them get away with, just like a kid, you know. Um, now, my dog, when I speak, he listens because he knows what the consequences are if he don't. Um, and he hunts every single day. So he is pretty conditioned to know exactly what's going on. A lot of guys who are booking hunts, let's say you live in a state that's not very waterfowl rich, like, you know, like yourself in Indiana. Mm -hmm. There's not a, a ton of birds in Indiana. You can have some good hunts, but, you know, as a as a, a hunter who, let's just say a normal nine to five working guy who works 40 hours a week, five days a week, he only gets to hunt two days a week. Well, how many uh, two days a week are in two months? You know what I mean? So you've only got, what, 16 days there that you can hunt? Plus, yeah. you know, if, you, if you've got vacation or if mm -hmm. you have Christmas and stuff like that. So your dog's already not getting as much um, uh, hunting as what he probably needs. Um, I have had dogs that have hunted with me that have zero experience in field trials and absolutely wonderful dogs. I've hunted with several time grand champion field trial dogs that don't know the first thing about hunting so um, most places are going to allow you to bring your dog but you've just got to realize that if your dog is messing up the hunt for you or other people especially if you're in a blended party mm -hmm. uh, that guide may ask you to take your dog to the truck and you can't get your feelings hurt for that because you know you can't sacrifice other people's experience over your dog Right. So, um, and of course, anybody that asks outfitter, can I bring my dog? The outfitter is going to say, well, does he mind? Does he sit down in the blind or pit and so he's not running around all this? Of course, you're going to say yes because you want your dog to come. So, um, but there are outfitters out there who will not let you bring their dog. And if that is the case, that is probably an outfit you want to book with because they're going to have good dogs. They're going to have good guides. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's kind of a, uh, you know, if, if you, if your dog not being able to come is going to decide whether you're going to hunt without outfitter or not, then, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things. But if an outfitter tells you absolutely not, you can't bring your dog, that's probably a place you want to be going. Yeah. Yep. However, I have had people bring their dogs, you know, can I bring my dog? Absolutely, but I'm bringing mine. And the reason is, is because whenever yours don't do what it's supposed to do, I'm going to show you how a dog's supposed to work. Right. Uh, and I've had I've had that happen many a times, you know, uh, somebody's out there screaming at their dog or blowing her whistle, dog's not listening. I'll just say my dog's name and he's gone. And your dog's going to watch my dog bring it back. And that's just the way, you know, it's the way it is. Um, and you know, your dog may be able to pick a few things up for my dog or, you know, somebody else's dog or something like that. However, a guy's not going to let you sit out there forever, you know, trying to get your dog to pick this bird up whenever you could be messing up other flocks of birds. So, um, I've hunted with absolutely fantastic <clears throat> dogs and I've hunted with dogs that I might've just shot where they sit. <laughs> And, I mean, there's a difference between a grand champion hunt test dog and a dog that is under a guide that hunts snow geese Absolutely. and it Absolutely. retrieves 2,200 birds a year or more. Right. Now, I had a guy that had came <clears throat> to hunt with me. He had a – it's like a four-time grand champion dog, you know, and he absolutely smashed field trials. And we shot a bird. He got out there, lined him up perfect, sent him, and he ran out there about five yards and turned around like, what am I doing? Um, and you can't fault the dog because he's never been hunted. He's just done hunt tests. Mm -hmm. uh, and every time a bird would come out, he would get out there and do the same thing. And eventually, you know, you got to cut your losses. You know, you got to say, you know, I know he's got a bunch of ribbons and pieces of paper and all that, but he's just not a hunting 
Um, so, you know, it, I'm not saying that your dog's not great. You know, you may put him out there in the field and hide bumpers and he'll smash it and do way better than my dog. But mm-hmm. when it comes to hunting, my dog's going to out hunt him every time, but it's just repetition. Yeah. What, what about the calling? Uh, my, here was my take on it. And this is what almost every guy is going to tell you, okay? If you're coming with a group and it's just you and your group, I would tell guys, it's your hunt, you can do what you want. But if you're hunting with a, say you're a party of three, and we're throwing a party of two or three or four with you or whatever, you're a blended party, I'm going to tell you not to call. Just because I can't have you screwing up the uh, <clears throat> the experience for the other guys. Um, obviously a guide who does it every day is, I'm not going to say he knows more than what you do as a hunter, because you may be a fantastic hunter, but if you don't know when to call or what to say, when you're, when to say it, then you're probably not going to have good results. Um, also, you know, um, I am a very non-aggressive caller. Um, and there are guys out there that are very aggressive callers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you'll find is people that really are very good on a duck call or a goose call for that matter would rather hear themselves blow the call and nine times out of six and a half they're Yeah, I know that's backwards. Um, they want to hear themselves blow. It's not for the duck itself. So I have a lot of people that say, man, I want to be a better caller. I want to be a better caller. Well, that's great, but the better you get, the more you want to hear yourself blow, and then you find yourself blowing way too hard, way too often, mm-hmm. and it's unnecessary. So when I see, you know, say you have a, a mallard, you know, he comes over um, over your decoys, you've got a wind from left to right, um, and he's coming from right to left, and you know that you have to get him past the decoys in a certain spot where when you hit him, back, 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 and he spins on a dime, He's got time to, to come into the decoys and land. So you got to let him get out there a little ways where he can, you know, has time to drop the altitude and come in. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm waiting to hit him at the exact perfect time and I'm letting an, uh, somebody else blow and they hit him at the wrong time and turn him at the wrong time and he doesn't have that time to get in, then you are working against what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So most guides are going to tell you that they will do all the calling and that's just something that you have to live with. Um, some of them will let you call. Um, if you've got a guy that really isn't a great caller and there's a lot of those out there, um, you might want to say, Hey, this is my hunt. You know, I'd like to blow a call and mm-hmm. he's going to have to be okay with that, I guess. But, um, if you got a guy that knows how to blow a call and he's doing what he's supposed to do, you probably ought to just let him do his thing. Now, what if you look down the uh, blind and one of the guys is using like a mallard whistle doing the Drake sound? Would you? As long, yeah, as long as he can do a mallard whistle, fine, or even a gadwall call. You know, um, those are pretty easy to use. Um, a whistle is never going to scare a bird. So even if it's a mallard Drake out there that the guide's working, and you want to do a pintail whistle or you want to do a widgeon whistle. As long as, you know, he is comfortable with you doing it correctly, then absolutely. Um, but you can even tell the guy and say, hey, I, you know, I'll do the Mallard Drake calling if that's all right. And you can hit it a couple of licks for him so he can see that you're doing it correctly. If he says absolutely, then go for it. Um, but as far as, you know, you just you just got to kind of feel it out, you know, say, do you mind if I call? And like I said, if it's not a blended party, Nine times out of ten, they're going to tell you, you know, this is your hunt. If that's what it takes for you to have a great experience, and then by all means, blow your call. But if you're working against what he's doing, then he may tell you, hey, I need you to settle down or maybe just do a feed and shuckle or maybe just do, you know, contented hen quack or something like that. Leave the rest of me. Um, you just got to be okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I have – I just thought this question, as a guide – I mean, what did you, whenever you would approach a hunting situation, I mean, would you change your decoy spread depending on the wind and the day or what, would you change it or was it just random or what would you go with? You always have um, what you, as a guide, you always have what you think is going to work for the morning. 
Um, and this is anybody, I don't care if you're a professional hunter, if you do it, you know, three days a week or one day a week or whatever, you're always going to look at the wind, the situation, you know, how, what's your blind set like and whether there's trees over here, you know, whatever. Um, and you're going to think in your head, what's the best decoy situation. Now, once you throw those decoys out, I always tell people your first flock of ducks is going to almost guarantee you what every other flock's going to do. Okay. So you have, let's say you have the first flock of ducks come in there and they land uh, 30 yards short of where you wanted them to land um, short of your decoys. Okay. Well, you keep that mental note. When the second flock comes in, eight times out of 10, they're going to do absolutely 1000% the exact same thing the other one mm-hmm. did. And if they land 30 yards wide where the first bunch did, you better make a move, whether that's move your blind down a little bit if you have a mobile blind or what have you um, you can move it down 30 yards or where they're going to be right in your face every time or you can make a decoy change and sometimes it only takes a few decoy changes to do it um, but a lot of times you're going to be moving you know quite a few decoys but after your second flock if the first two flocks do the the same thing then every single flock after that unless the wind changes or something drastic changes they're all going to do the exact same thing so don't sit there and say well the guys on the right's getting all the shooting because they're landing short that's when you've got to make a change and make something happen uh whether like i said whether it's moving the blind or the decoys but usually the decoys are the easiest thing to move hmm. <clears throat> but sitting there doing the same thing all day long is not gonna you know you're not gonna have the the best day so yeah now go ahead i'm just gonna say make something happen you know don't don't sit there and hope things change make something happen yeah yeah so i mean we've we've talked about the moon phase we've talked about questions to ask the outfitter um let, let's say, I mean, I, I want to be in your shoes right now because you were a guide. Now you get to be on this side of things. If you were going to book a hunt tomorrow, I mean, what what would... Because people used to say Stuttgart, Arkansas was the place to be. And, I mean, yeah, we saw some good pictures this season, but the last two seasons, it was kind of dry. Um, mm-hmm. And then, I mean... I hear from some other camps that Oklahoma is kind of the hotbed right now. I mean, where would your, I mean, you don't have to give away your secrets because I mean, you're going to have your little secret holes and connections and people keeping the ear to the ground for you. But what states would you keep your eye on for guides? Well, first I'll say I, I had the pleasure of hunting Arkansas when I was about 13 or 14. I'm 40 now. And then obviously had the opportunity to guide in Arkansas for several years. Um, mm-hmm. Arkansas today is not what Arkansas 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago was. Um, Arkansas is overhunted. Um, the amount of birds that go there now is not what it used to be. Uh, I'm not saying you can't kill a lot of birds in Arkansas because trust me, you can whack them. Um, but as far as Arkansas goes, it's more, it's pretty played out. Um, if I was going to book a hunt nowadays, I would stay around the Kansas, Oklahoma, northern Missouri. Um, there's still some good good hunting in southern Missouri, but northern Missouri is really a good staging spot up by Squaw Creek, you know, which is up there towards where several states meet. Um, and, of course, Squaw Creek holds, you know, the refuge there holds just oodles and oodles of birds um i have a buddy who hunted up in northern missouri or guided northern missouri this year and several days they were even during duck season he had you know 170 bird day where they were killing a lot of uh, snows and specks he had several days over 100 that they were killing just because you know it's such a a well-populated staging area for birds Um, but anywhere in the you know northern uh, pretty well the whole state of missouri on the west side of the state is good um kansas oklahoma um and you know there's a lot of sleeper states out there like uh colorado and montana and uh some uh you know states over there now as although there are 
you know, North and South Dakota is a duck factory, I would stay away from those states because they're like Arkansas. They're very overpopulated at hunting. Um, I hunted there probably six years ago, freelancing, and it was, there was so many people duck hunting in that area that you just couldn't find places to hunt because you scout a spot, you get there the next morning, somebody's already in that spot and it's first come first serve and you're out of luck. Yeah. Um, so I would go to, to some of those sleeper states. Uh, and there's a lot of states out west that have absolutely beautiful hunting. Uh, say you're on some of those rivers, um, like anywhere, the Platte River, you're going to beat the birds on the Platte. I don't care what state it's in. Um, but you have a lot of places out west that have uh, hot springs that, that never freeze and you can absolutely beat them. And nobody goes to those states. They're just not states that you think that is good for duck hunting but there are some fantastic places yeah but as far as outfitters and all yeah i'd stay in the the missouri to kansas oklahoma that region there yeah now as just between me and you and of course the listeners now but uh, <laughs> um as a duck call maker do you keep track of like where you're sending duck calls and like whoa what's going on over here I do not keep track of the state that I send calls to, mm. uh, but, you know, as far as uh, a lot of guys that I sell calls to, you know, we become what I call, you know, I mean, obviously you never met them, but you, you consider them friends. You talk to them a lot. Um, and I have guys that, that talk to me quite a bit from other states. I uh, got a, a, a real good one that I call a great friend. I talk to probably a couple times a week from California. Um and but as far as you know keeping track of how many calls are going to what state i don't but i do keep everybody's name um name and you know what call number they got and what the call was made out of whether it's tipped and all that and of course the date and the price and all that but now as far as far as uh, keeping up with the states i do not do See, I would highly suggest that, Jonathan, because this last year and this year, there were mm -hmm. two states that blew my mind. Like, they, I, I kept sending calls to that state, to the two states, and I was like, wait a second. And they are like, I'm not even going to say which states. I mean, yeah. people can go back to the episodes and kind of figure it out if you want. But uh, um, the... It blew my mind. I started contacting some of these people that were buying duck calls, and I was like, hey, um, you got any duck pictures, you know? And it was blowing my mind. I'm like, that state? Really? And they're like, oh, yeah, they just they just started showing up by droves. It's like, well, yeah. uh-oh. And that's, that's one of the things, like, uh, you know, I say Arkansas played out. It's not what it used to be, okay? Arkansas and Louisiana used to kill the most greenheads per capita of any state in, in the union, you know, mm -hmm. and now got Louisiana. Everybody from Louisiana says we don't get very many greenheads anymore. And that, of course, if you watch the, the duck men, they kill greenheads all the time, you know, but they're not in the, the southern part of the state. No, uh, but almost everybody in the whole entire state say, man, I mean, we used to, that's all we kill is greenheads. And then Arkansas is the same way, obviously. And of course they still are, I think they still kill the most mallards of any state. Um, but uh, you go to, let's say, you know, Southern Illinois, where I'm from, we used to beat the geese like it was nothing. Okay. Well, they quit coming here. Now they all stage up there in, in Northern Illinois. Same thing with uh, Rochester, Minnesota. 20 years ago, I mean, they were just crushing them. Now they don't hardly get nothing. Now Fergus Falls gets them. You know, Fergus Falls has been uh, one of the hot places in, in uh, Minnesota for the last couple of years. Well, I got news for you folks. In 20 years, they're not going to be killing anything. Um, everything changes. You know, uh, Oklahoma wasn't considered a good duck state till about five, six, seven years ago. Now Oklahoma and Kansas are booming. Guess what? Here in about 20 years, it's not going to be that way. It's going to be somewhere else. And that's just the way, you know, evolution is always, everything's always changing. Um, so just because you're crushing them here now in 20 years, you're not going to be crushing them like you once were. Yeah. Um, going to be a different place so <clears throat> you know everybody wants to think that oh man this state's the best one in the world they've been killing them here since 1943 and well they ain't killing them like they were back in 1943 i promise you yep it yep. changes 
always going to change. But I have a feeling it they will never relocate to Indiana or Ohio. I just have probably, a feeling. <laughs> yeah, probably not. And it, you know, and Ohio is one of those states that's in between and always has been pretty well in between. Uh, you know where these birds are coming. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, between your Mississippi Flyway, most of our Mississippi Flyway birds are born in Saskatchewan and the Dakotas and, and those region, and they come down over and down. Um, and then you got your uh, Atlantic Flyway, who it comes pretty well straight down the Atlantic. You know, they the the states in between there. Of course, you're going to get some birds, but you're not going to get the majority of them, like you know, some of those other places are. Um, now Ohio has been good for a lot of years for waterfowl, um, pretty well closer to the Northern part. Cause mm-hmm. obviously that's right out of Canada. Uh, but Indiana is just located, you know, Indiana, Kentucky, um, and Tennessee, you know, Western Tennessee doesn't get the birds at the very tip of Eastern Tennessee does. They're, they're getting the, the far East part of the Mississippi flyway. Um, but even know. then real foot isn't near what it once was. No, and nothing is, you know, I mean, of course, you know, the populations of birds aren't what they used to be, which we we know that. Um, But, yeah, I mean, they used to get, you know, even in Memphis, you know, they used to kill tons of birds right there by Memphis, um, which is obviously not too far from Arkansas. If anybody's ever been to Memphis, you know, uh, Arkansas is not very darn far away from there. Um, And, you know, they just don't kill them like they used to there. Um, so it's ever evolving. And if you, of course, you know, a lot of people don't have a hunting career that's 30, 40, 50 yard, or years long. Um, you know, I'm in my 31st waterfowl season now, and I've seen so much change where I live in those 31 years. It would absolutely blow your mind. You know, I can remember flocks of migrating mallards that were 50, 75, 100 birds, and now you don't see a migrating flock of mallards over 25. If you see that, you know, mostly 10, 15, something like that. Yeah. Uh, the Canada geese, when they used to migrate through here, they would migrate in flocks of 75 to 200. Now, if you see a migrating flock of geese, which is as rare as hen's teeth, it's going to be 15 to 20 birds max. You know, we just, just don't get them like that. Um, and that's, that's been the case anywhere. I mean, if you talk to somebody who, uh, was hunting in Arkansas in the fifties and sixties and seventies, I promise you that person does not hunt anymore because it's just, you know, used to go out by seven 30 and kill a limit. And now they can't kill a limit if they hunt all day. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it's what it is, man. I mean, the it's so funny because you have real foot, you have Arkansas, you have Louisiana, and I mean the bird, the the migration changed, but the tradition stayed. It's oh yeah, it's so cool. Oh, Stuttgart, Arkansas is always going to be on the map for, uh, you know, if somebody says something, what's the best waterfowl hunting you've ever heard? First thing they're going to say is Stuttgart, Arkansas, and I'm uh, I can't knock it, you know. Arkansas was good to me. I didn't guide in Stuttgart, but I guided all around Stuttgart. And um, it's still a great place to kill birds, but it's just not what it once was. Yeah. And and it, it probably never will be again. Um, and it's just, you know, things you got to live with. Now, you know, a lot of the old timers who hunted in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and, and even into the early 90s, most of them have quit hunting. And, you know, you can't blame them. You know, they... They just said it's it's not worth it anymore. However, I just cannot see me ever hanging up the boots. Yeah. But, you know, I, I hunt with people, obviously, from around everywhere, being a guide when I was guiding. And even, you know, today, you know, you see people coming from North Carolina, South Carolina, states like that. And they're like, oh, we shoot wood ducks and we don't have any birds. And I, I tell them all the same thing. I don't know how in the world you can live in a state as a waterfowl hunter that doesn't have waterfowl. I'd be moving somewhere that's got it. You know, even though you can only hunt them for two months out of 12, I've got to be where the birds are at. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Jonathan, we are getting close. Do you want to give a recap real quick on, let's say, the um, top three things to look for in a guide? 
In a guide itself, um, first of all, do they have a website, a real website, not a not a uh, a page on Facebook? Uh, that's number one. Number two, do they have lodging? Um, and number three, oh, let's see, um, oh, I would say the the food would have to be, you know, another one of those things. Uh, probably my top three. Um, do you have lodging? Uh, and like I said, forget about the pictures. Don't even worry about pictures. But those three, you know, between, you know, the moon phase, whether they have those dates. But, um, yeah, if you're looking for somewhere, do they have lodging? That's probably number one. And uh, that's probably what I'd have to go with. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for uh... – Coming back, man, and talking about uh, this side of things, um, especially, I mean, this is the time of year that people need to be uh, making these decisions. Um, and, yeah, I really appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. Um, and if anybody uh, has any questions, uh, if you know how to get a hold of me, I'll answer anything you've got. Um, just like, like you just said, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a spot to hunt next year, you better be looking for it now, get it, get it booked because those prime dates are going to go away, but just make sure that you're always checking out that moon phase anytime you go somewhere. Yeah. And also if you are thinking about go, going on a guided hunt and you're also thinking, you know, you know, I, I may Maybe I lost a duck call or this last season, or maybe I need to work on my calling. How can they get a hold of a Pied Piper call? Uh, well, right now I just have a, a page on Instagram, and it's uh, Pied Piper Handmade Calls. Um, or you can look me up uh, on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page, not a call page, but my personal Facebook page, um, Jonathan Hill. And you can look me up uh, through that or Messenger. Um, I've got a, a heck of a list, but I'm knocking them out every day. So, uh, seems like as soon as somebody drops off the list, three more jump on. So, uh, just get a hold of me through social media is the easiest way to do it. Uh, like I said, Instagram at Pied Piper Handmade Calls or just, uh, Jonathan Hill. You've got to find the right Jonathan Hill. I'm sure there's a thousand of them on Facebook, but, uh, you, you get a hold of somebody who knows me or Riley, he can point you in the right direction. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Well, if you just want to stay on the line, I'll close her out real quick. Absolutely. All right, so that was Jonathan Hill with Pipe Piper uh, call, handmade calls, custom calls. I, I can't remember. Anyway, go back and listen to it. Um, they Yeah, so if you get a chance, get a hold of him and make sure to uh, go back and listen to this episode again and like – Write down some of these tips because, I mean, when you get tips from someone from that side of the blind, you're getting tips from the guide, The that's the guy you need to listen to. And you need to start looking at your moon phases right now. You need to start making your decisions on the guide right now um, and start booking those dates. So, everyone, uh, till next time, this has been Riley Hendrickson with Rilo's Quack Chat. <laughs> 